0: Hey, it's me, Mac Monroe, the founder and CEO of Boss Builders. Attention, business owners, CEOs, and HR professionals. You have managers who lack the basic skills to be a great boss? Better contact Mac. Your manager's afraid to address performance issues with employees? Better contact Mac. Managers unable to complete the most rudimentary processes as a boss? Better contact Mac. You're pulling your hair out wishing your managers would simply step up and do their job? Better contact Mac. Here at boss builders we provide the basic skills every manager needs to be a great boss we do this in three ways first our team of skilled professionals facilitate our signature workshop driving results this four-day program offered in whatever time chunks you need gives participants the basic skills to fix systems and processes develop employees and protect your house we also offer our popular video-based boss builder academy which allows your managers to have basic skills training delivered to them in short, effective how-to videos, which are supplemented by our monthly roundtable sessions. Finally, we offer our driving results curriculum to organizations that want to license it and deliver it using their own in-house trainers. For more information on how we can help you improve the quality of your managers, Better Contact Mac. You can do that at BetterContactMac.com or reach us by phone at 931 221-2988. Well, hello and welcome to this episode of the Boss Builder Podcast, the podcast for those of you who are new to supervision, those of you who are in the role and are struggling, and even those of you who are thinking about one day making the transition to management. One thing I always tell groups that I talk to is that you will always remember the best boss you ever had and you will always remember the worst boss you will ever have, but everybody in between is just a blur. That is absolutely true in my life and fortunately I was able to find and locate the best boss I ever had and he is our special guest on today's podcast. His name is Greg Nelson. Now, I can set up the scene just a little bit for you. If you've heard my talks, you've already heard this story, but we'll start right back in 1982 when I graduated high school, fourth from the bottom of my graduating class in a really prestigious college prep school. I had no interest in going to no interest in going to college and really didn't know what I wanted to do. But I did find my way into a dental laboratory technology program, a 6-month trade school, and I actually enjoyed that. I got to work with my hands. Uh, enjoyed the idea that I was going to be making dental appliances. So for those of you who don't know, that is crowns and bridges and dentures. The challenge was at the time, there was a bad recession going on. And so every lab in the area that I applied for wanted at least five years of experience. Of course, I only had five months. And so out of frustration, I went back to my instructors at the school and asked them what they thought I should do. Well, these guys were all retired Navy dental technicians. And they told me, why don't you try the Navy? Uh, If you join the Navy, you may have to go back through lab school again, but that's how we learned. You'll get to go through it again. Then you get your five years experience. You can go ahead and get out, and then you can get a job. Well, it sounded good to me, so I talked to a Navy recruiter, and he told me, yeah, with your certificate, we'd love to have you. Now, he says, you you will have to go to dental assisting school first. He said, but don't worry, because halfway through that 12-week program, anybody interested in lab school does a chalk carving test. If you can carve a piece of chalk into a tooth... They'll take you right on to lab school. So with that promise, I went ahead and swore in and went to basic training in December of 1983, got through that and then started into the dental assisting school in San Diego. And I remember thinking, you know, about a week or two into it, like, God, this job friggin' sucks because literally that's what you do as a dental assistant. You suck blood and spit through a suction tube and you hand the instruments to the dentist. Well, I knew I wasn't going to be doing that. I could not wait for the chunk carving test. And as promised, halfway through, we did it and I aced it. The only problem was the lab school instructor said we have no openings in the lab school, so you'll have to go and reapply in three years, which meant that I had to be a dental assistant, which I was really disappointed because I didn't want to do that. I did not like the job whatsoever, but now I'm stuck. So my consolation prize was my first set of orders to NAVCOM State Herald E. Holt in Exmouth, Western Australia. Now, I didn't bother paying much attention to where I was going. I didn't realize it was an isolated outpost on the far northwest Cape. But after 26 hours of flying, I landed on this isolated remote airstrip. And my sponsor said, hey, let's go to the clinic and meet our new boss. So I meet my new boss. His name is Lieutenant Commander... Gary Backer. And the first thing Dr. Backer says to me is, Monroe, you're fat. You need to go to the gym and get your fat measured. I know you're going to be on the Fat Boy program. So this is my welcome to the world. And it didn't get much better working with him. You know, if I passed him the wrong instrument, he'd just give me this look and he'd kick me in the shins underneath the patient and just miserable. I, I hated it. And I realized that I was stuck. I had five years or whatever it was on my enlistment and I truly believed I was in hell. Well, mercifully, he transferred about four months later. His replacement was a lot different. His name was Dr. Dave Fabre, and he was a great guy, Um, but that's really all. He was just my boss. I worked with him. He was nice. He didn't demean me, but I don't ever get the feeling he was interested in what I was interested in, and frankly, I didn't really know what I was interested in. Well, 17 months later, uh, I think that's what the tour, 15 or 17 months, he transfers. His replacement is very different. His name was Lieutenant Commander Greg Nelson. Greg Nelson was the first person who ever really took an interest in, my, in me and what I wanted to do and through his mentoring, through his hard work with me, he goes down in history as the best boss I've ever had. And fortunately, I was able to locate him and he is our guest on the show today. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about his background and we'll talk a little bit about kind of the process that he uses uh, he used in his time in the Navy to become a mentor and I will tell you right up front there's really two important things he's going to share with you. The first is the willingness to build a relationship with the people that you are working with not buddy buddy but a relationship that you can build on and the second is to become a mentor and take an active interest in what the people are interested in and learn to build that. Greg did that for me, and he is the single reason why I am successful today and not working on a construction site or, God forbid, still assisting a dentist in a dental operatory. So it's a rather long podcast. It's about an hour long, and Greg's going to talk a little bit about his background, and then we'll talk about our time together at Harold E. Holt. He'll even give you an insight on what he saw in me early and also some of my coworkers at the time. And he'll sort of follow up the story on what happened and even a few odd, interesting things that happened while we were stationed there that I think you'll appreciate too. Long podcast, great one to use if you're stuck in traffic, but I would strongly encourage you to listen carefully. Because if you can emulate somebody's great boss, you can't help but be a great boss yourself. So, with no further delay, let's meet our special guest, Greg Nelson. Greg Nelson, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you, Mac. It's a delight to hear your voice again.
0: Well, it is really awesome to have you. When I started doing the podcast, I had a mission in mind, and that was that we would give information to those people who were newly promoted as supervisors, those who are struggling in the role, or those who are kicking the tires. And if possible, I would love to identify and interview great bosses. And so it just so happens I was able to reconnect. And you, as you probably know, I've told you this a few times, have been the absolute best boss I've ever had. So it's an honor to have you on the show. And I'm looking forward to just hearing a little bit about your story, the background, and then from your perspective, what it was like when we worked together back in the mid 80s. So to start off, Greg, um, tell us a little bit about your Navy career. I want you to do that because you've got a very interesting background. You went to some places that very few dental officers went to. And you're also uh, an adventurer. I remember looking at some of the photos in the operatory. There was one with you diving next to an unexploded mine. I can't remember where that was. But before we get into the boss stuff, tell us a little bit about your background.
1: Okay. I uh, began my Navy career in, uh, well, first off, when I was completing dental school, I was going under financially like everyone does. And uh, rather than select the option of taking a series of loans to complete school, I took a scholarship from the Navy to complete the last two years of my training. And uh, from that, I owed the Navy two or three years in return. And I had no intention of giving them any more than that amount of time and uh, began my career in a residency program at Philadelphia Navy hospital. And uh, it was a general practice residency that prepared me for isolated duty and I then spent the remainder of what turned out to be a long career trying to avoid specialization in dentistry or assignment to large dental centers. The philosophy doesn't do wonders for one's career trajectory necessarily, but I loved doing all phases of dentistry, and I enjoyed a lot of the Navy's far-flung locations, as well as the independence of working pretty much on my own. Every time I came to some juncture in my career where I was thinking I was going to get out and return to my... Real pipe dream of moving here where I finally did to Wyoming, the Navy would hang some more delectable looking carrot in some other direction and away I'd go again. And so, as you said, I got to spend a lot of time in uh, very remote corners of the world. We'll send your listeners to their globes to go looking for me, I guess. The independence that I had also gave me a more direct responsibility for the people that were working with me, but I had never really had any formal training and only limited prior experience in mentoring and supervising and uh, I guess whether that helped or hindered my development at a boss is open conjecture but uh, I'm pleased that you think I somehow helped in your development Uh, in addition to a number of mostly West Coast stateside bases the Navy sent me to quite isolated locations in Antarctica, Kauai, Western Australia out there where I met you and Diego Garcia as well as aboard a couple ships out of Guam. And uh, you and I first crossed paths out there in Western Australia, and again, but only very briefly in Guam. Um, I uh, was somebody who had grown up in the Midwest and had done a lot of hunting and fishing, but uh, with the Navy's locations out in the tropical areas, there wasn't much skiing or any of the other things that I had been doing before. And I took up diving, and I think you'll Probably a test to the amount of time I spent doing that while we were out in Australia. The photo you mentioned there came from uh, Palau, or Balau as it's now called. And uh, that was from a trip I had taken there just, I think it was probably only a, two or three years before I met you. But, uh, yeah, if people want to know some of the really fine places in the world, Western Australia, where we were stationed, is just i think you'll attest is beautiful water beautiful beaches wonderful people and so on but it's uh from where i'm sitting right here i can, can attest to the fact it's 36 hours of flying and airport time to get there so it's quite remote diego garcia is kind of infamous as being a remote location even for navy remoteness and uh everyone who went out there talked like they had gone somewhere on the dark side of the moon but uh with the infrastructure that the military has built there in conjunction with the British, the uh, water facilities, the sewer facilities, and electricity generation, and so on, if the military ever leaves there, I'll tell you that uh, the Club Med people are going to be right in behind them taking it over. It's beautiful. So for those who want to look for it, it's a dead center in the Indian Ocean.
0: Yeah, that's great. And then you did you winter over in Antarctica, or was that the summer support?
1: I was a summer support person in Antarctica, Um, beginning with the dental officer that preceded me. They had removed the winter over option for dental officers Mm -hmm. because they had reduced the size of the winter over population from uh, 225 to 66. So we did a lot of work to screen those 66 people just as immaculately as you could in the 70s for dentistry. And then I spent some time with the winter over physician, teaching him just a couple things that uh, would get him out of most foreseeable problems. If he somebody broke a tooth and it was really sensitive, I taught him how to cut it down and put a temporary crown on it. That uh, if he did it well, it would probably last out the season and keep it from being too sensitive. And uh, failing with that, I taught him how to extract some teeth. And uh, so... That We figured that that would probably get him out of any corner he might find himself in.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure that would be one corner he would not want to be in. I was uh, watching the other night the movie Cast Away with Tom Hanks, where he takes his tooth out with an ice skate. So it'd probably be something uh, pretty close to that.
1: Well, yeah, the... I dealt with two winter over physicians. I mean, you'll probably edit this out, but uh, the first one did not want to be there, and he spent his whole time that we were I was there with summer support trying to get out of the job, and the Navy had no one else to send. That was why he was there, and so they weren't going to let him out. He was already down there, and he just wouldn't buy into the idea. He was stuck, and uh, when it became obvious that he was going to be spending the winter, he— Brought every one of his winter over party people through. And I had to take new x-rays and do a complete exam with him, you know, explaining what each one had. And on the day before I left, they have a Russian exchange scientist that comes This is back in the Cold War era, of course. And uh, they brought this guy in. And so Tim went and grabbed this dude right off the plane and brought him over so that I could take a look at him. And uh, I just took one set of bite wings and looked. He had stainless steel crowns everywhere in his mouth. And in my opinion, it was kind of primitive-looking dentistry. But when I took the bite wings on him, he had had pulpotomies done on virtually all of his posterior teeth without having the root canals completed. <laughs> and uh, I looked at those x-rays with Tim looking over my shoulder, and I said, he'll be fine <laughs> i had to bail i was on the last flight out the next day and i mean there was no way to begin doing anything that was required and indeed he was fine he got through the winter with no problems so
0: well he'd probably had those things for years before that so oh i'm sure
1: yeah it's i but i had never seen a mouth that looked quite like that one but i mean it took a little bit of work to swallow hard and say, oh, you will be fine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, then let's pick up the story in 1986. So 1986, you arrive at, uh, on the Cape. I had been there since June of 1984. I had been there for uh, three or four months of uh, Gary Backer's tour. And then Dave Fabre filled in that gap and then you showed up. And so... Kind of pick up the story from there. What were your impressions? Tell us a little bit about your role there. And then I really want to get into uh, what you saw as your role as a mentor.
1: Okay. Uh, The Harold E. Holt communication station out there in Western Australia was the third position I had held where I was the manager and solely responsible for my tax. And our clinic, as I've said, had the fortune of a stable work group for an uncommon amount of time. I mean, and you say that if two years together can seem like a long time, but that's one, well, that's two Navy eternities, I think. And ours was a small enough group that I would work closely with everyone every day. And We had an interesting and a varied group as well. Each of us had some strengths and talents and each had some issues, and I can include myself as much as the rest of the troops there. But I had what I had was considered pretty good success with a few of the group, and somewhat less success with a couple of the others. And I think that's probably the story everywhere with every one of your listeners here. As if there were a real formula with which I worked, it probably would have begun just trying to truly get to know my new colleagues from the beginning. First impressions that you get are inevitable in some ways kind of lasting, but my experience anyway, they're not necessarily defining. And uh, so getting to know the troops that we had there, I think, you know, I mean, you'll... Kind of cast your own memories back, and I know have your own impressions. But uh, I have—I never again had the opportunity to work with people as long as I did there, and it proved to be the most rewarding and probably, the, well, certainly the most memorable part of the entire tour out there, except for the good
0: diving. Well, let's see. Um, I'll start with my first impression. So, so one of the things that we had there was a 90 minute lunch, which was a luxury. I think we started at, I think it was seven o'clock in the morning, if I remember right. We started early and we knocked off around four, but it was sort of command policy to have an hour and a half lunch. The understanding of course, is that you would go out and exercise for an hour then you'd have 30 minutes to get showered off and have your lunch and you get back to work. And as you probably remember, when you got there, I think only one person might've been Catherine ever worked out during lunch. I never did. I usually just went home and had a big lunch for lunch. So the first thing our new boss, Greg Nelson does is he takes away our 90 minute lunch. He says, well, we need to see patients. Uh, Nobody PTs anyway. So we're going back to an hour, which my first impression was that that sucks. You got to be kidding me. And so first impressions right off the bat, that was not a very good one. The, the second impression I had and working with you because uh, it was Terrence first that worked with me and then he transferred and then Jim Harris came in. What we would do is we would rotate because entry level as a dental technician is to sit chairside, which in my mind was the worst job on the planet. I never wanted to do it anyway. And then, you know, the goal is you get through your patients as quick as possible so that you can get the room cleaned up. And, and the, the first impression I have of Greg Nelson, which I think he's told you is he's a, he's not a a dentist as much as I think he's an artist. And so nothing moved very quickly as we would work on patients because he was meticulous, which of course was great. If you wanted to be a dental student for me, I wanted to get out of there as quick as possible. So we're waiting. And then, um, one of the things that you would do, and we kind of joked about this a lot was polishing those amalgams. Which, you know, I'd look at the clock and we'd have five minutes before the patient was done. My next one was already sitting out there. And you said, Well, while we're here, why don't we go ahead and polish up these amalgams? And I think, Oh, Lord, you got to be kidding. So there's another 15 minutes on. So initially, my first impression was, Who is this guy? You got to be kidding me. Because all of a sudden, now the constraints. And uh, on top of that, in my own mind, I still did not know what I wanted to do with my life. I really just wanted to get out of the Navy. I was counting down the days. So this was not a real happy time. And uh, so that was kind of my first impression. And so I want to toss it back to you now, Greg, and talk about, you know, when you started into this, did you see anything in me or in anybody else that you thought was at least worth kind of working and getting a foothold in?
1: Well, I certainly did, Mac. I'll tell you, since you proposed this uh, podcast, I had the pleasure of reminiscing back on those days, and uh, uh, I can wax on at some lengths here if your audience wants to hear me out. Uh, As you said, you've written in your blog about your experiences with Navy recruiters and your very different experiences after induction. And uh, those quite likely shaped the attitudes that I saw some two years later on when I arrived there in 1986. But since I was initially unaware of those experiences or your feelings about the prior dental officers and the recruiters and so on, I had no basis by which to judge what seemed to be just in my opinion, a pretty standard animosity toward the Navy. Like many young personnel, you felt underutilized and underappreciated in your role working as a chairside assistant. And as you said, it's it's probably a fairly low form of life. But unlike most others that I'd worked with, you weren't at all averse to telling me so. <laughs> 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 uh, to put adjectives to my first impressions, you were obviously ambitious, but you weren't properly motivated. And you were, yeah, I hate to say cocksure, but uh, that was probably it rather than just confident. And you really seem to have no specific goals, as you said here, other than just surviving your period of enlistment. But on the plus side, I mean, you were very competent as a chairside assistant. You were really appreciated when you were cleaning teeth for the other personnel. And you were genuinely fun to work with all day. So, you know, it was an easy thing to take the bad with the good there, I guess you could say. And, uh, you know, as you've alluded, male dental assistants leaving the Navy would almost never continue with a chairside career in the civilian world. And I had seen a lot of that even in just in my 10 years in the Navy to that point. And having someone that came in and just did their time and then left the Navy nothing but just four years older and without an improved or marketable skill set always seemed just like an incredible waste to me with you the issue became kinda channeling your ambitions in some useful direction and I know that we would have talked about it but you were already knowledgeable enough in dentistry that it was easy to suggest dentistry as a potential career I mean it's what I know so it's easy for me to talk about and just four years of chairside experience gives anyone a familiarity with the dental terminology and anatomy and the materials and equipment and all the procedures that would really and truly place them miles ahead of almost anyone else entering dental school. You can believe me. I mean, I was there. It would take even the brightest person in any dental class at least a year or two to overtake the lead that such a start might have given you. And initially, you seemed to respond to the suggestion. So I plowed ahead with challenges that might help and develop, demonstrate your abilities to you. And as you, I guess, often say, fate even assisted when I found I had a loose filling in my own mouth. So since there was no Australian dentist in town at the time, repair of the problem for me was up to us. we had the luxury of that small base and knowing everyone there. So whenever a patient came in and needed anesthesia on the lower left side, I would ask if it was all right for you to administer the injection under my supervision. When I explained that you would eventually be doing the same to me, no one declined. I mean, (laughs) they were a good group to work with. I also mounted up some extracted wisdom teeth in plaster blocks for you to practice cutting, using both the high and the slow speed hand pieces and then filling those preparations. And uh, I don't know what it was. I would bet it was probably only about four injections and half a dozen tooth fillings. You were ready. And I will say you did an admirable job. So 32 years later, your filling is still
0: in there. Well, it's because I polished it after, remember? I remember I had to make you do that. That's <laughs> correct. Yes. <laughs> well, that's. I love that story because, and I tell that story at every one of the talks that I do at conferences, because I say I had a, a boss who put his mouth where his mouth was. So what I want to do is fill in the gap a little bit now. So you sort of planted the seed. And because I remember you saying, you know, why don't you think about dental school? And I remember thinking, OK, well, I suck at math and science. I graduated four from the bottom in my high school. Uh, graduating class, and that was a college prep school I went to. But I remember going home on leave that Christmas, and I was uh, helping my dad clean out the attic and the house that I grew up in. And I found a box up there with some of my high school papers that I'd written. And I started reading them, and I thought, I don't even remember writing this, but it seems like I'm writing, I'm reading somebody else's work here. And I think I realized at that point that I had really let myself go. And I wasn't challenging myself. And, and really my options were to get out of the Navy. Uh, my wife at the time, her family had quite a bit of money. Her dad had a company and, and sort of the expectation is I would go work on one of his construction sites, which that did not appeal to me either. More Definitely more than doing dental assisting. But I remember coming back from that leave. First of all, i probably gained 20 pounds on that. And uh In fact, I had an award ceremony I had to go to. I had to borrow this big, huge, fat chief's pants to put them on so I could actually have a uniform to go out there and get. I think it was a good conduct medal that I got. But I think that's where things started to turn. And one of the things you said, I remember you said, you know, you can do this. You already have the dexterity. You can learn math and science. And then I remember you pushing me to go take a college class. The first one I could find was physics which of course scared me to death because I'm horrible at math and science, but there was encouragement and that was the difference. And I, I think I wound up getting a B in that class. And so when the time came, when you came in, I think it was a Monday morning and said, you know, Hey, I busted a filling over the weekend. I thought, well, here's the options. You could go see Dr. Glick out in X mouth, which I knew was definitely not an option. Cause I remember whenever he'd be out on the Royal Flying Doctor, all the Aussies would try to get in and see you. Uh, or you could do TAD to Hawaii, which was, you know, I don't know, 18 hours or whatever the flight would have been. Or we just do it in-house. And so that was that that was a, a pivotal moment. That was a moment that somebody took a chance on me and believed in me. And and everything turned from there. Um, you obviously know the rest of the story. I never did go to dental school, but I did get motivated. So that was a, a happy ending and the filling's still in place. So so that's great. Let's, let's go back. I want to talk about the other folks that you worked with, but I do want to revisit the story of the 90-minute lunch. And, and I think we complained enough that you finally relented and said, all right, here's the deal. If all of you get an outstanding on the PRT... Which means you pass the tape and the body, the, the weight, and all that. You can get it back. So, from my recollection, now we had uh, we had myself, who was probably twenty pounds overweight. We had Manny, who was a chain smoker and barely exercised. Uh, let's see, I think by then we had Jim Harris, who was a golfer and he knew how to throw darts, but that was really the extent of his athletic ability. And then we had Catherine, and the goal was all of us get an outstanding on the PRT. So that means running a mile and a half. I forget what the time was for me. I had to do I think all of us had to do at least sixty seven push-ups and a hundred sit-ups and then do the sit reach and pass the tape. So we we started in on this, and I think we came up to the first PRT, and I think only half of us got the outstanding, so we're okay with that. And then I think it was maybe two more cycles, and I think there was one where it was just one person that held us back, and you still did not give in. And it wasn't until everybody got that outstanding that you gave us back our hour and a half lunch. And you know, I think about that one a lot because, uh, and and I've told this story a lot. You know, my son, who's an area manager at Amazon, you know, we talked about is it better to be respected or to be liked? And and I told him it's better to be respected because if you're respected, eventually you'll be liked. But if you're liked, you may never be respected. And so, you know, in thinking back, um, I ended up getting a great deal of respect for you because you did not let off on that requirement and you did it for our own good. And eventually it became where we liked you. And so- that was a that was a huge memory for me. But tell us a little bit about so the other development that you did there at the clinic.
1: Oh, okay. Well, when it came up to the first impressions that you get, you know, as you mentioned here earlier, a very fo- positive first impression came from Terrence, and uh, like you, Terrence was on his first duty station, was still pretty junior, even though you had both passed your advancement exam to. E4, I think a year or so prior to my arrival, but Terence really sought experience and information. He just lapped it all up with uh, just real keen interest and enthusiasm. Seemed nothing I would tell him about dentistry or what the role of his assistants and the quality of my work was was beyond his ability to understand. But unfortunately, he was due to leave real shortly and was headed to the Marines. Uh, you probably recall that at the time, the base at Harold Lee Holt was pretty seriously lacking in military discipline. I mean, yes. I guess, due to issues beyond the purview of our discussion here. But in the Marines, Terrence was going to an organization where military discipline is a singular point of pride. And he was going to be utterly unprepared since Harold Holt had been his only real military experience. And just by simple good fortune... A close friend of mine was going to be the new executive officer of the dental command where Terrence was headed. So I wrote to tell him that he should take Terrence under his wing and protect the kid when he inevitably said or did something really non-marine. And my friend took me at my word. Terrence ultimately blossomed into much of his potential, I guess. And my friend eventually even got him commissioned into the Navy officer ranks. And, uh, even though my friend never detailed the problems he had, he has implied there were several, but much later, he also thanked me for my heads up and for my personal guarantee for the man. And, uh, I won't take much credit for Terrence's success. Terrence did every bit of that himself, but, uh, you know, I'd like to make the point that I really did stake my credibility and my friendship on my promise that he would be worth the absolutely certain trouble he would cause. And I, I'm not implying that was by his intent. He just was oblivious to the real norms of military behavior. So maybe I just kept him from piling up on the rocks there. Uh,
0: that that is, a, that is really a risk to put your neck out for someone who could definitely ruin a relationship over. So I had no idea about that. That's interesting.
1: Yeah. The, uh, you, know, I, just, you know, you just hate to think where, you know, some run, young but, you know, intelligent and, as you said, driven kid might have gone if he'd have, you know, gotten crossways with some officer in the Marines. It just, it really would have been catastrophic for his life. Anyway, Terrence, uh, you know, you mentioned the name Jim. Terence was replaced by Jim. And Jim came to us with a wealth of personal issues. I think you'll probably acknowledge that. He had been a dental technician for, I don't know, what was it, about nine or ten years? Yes. And had not advanced in rank for like the past six or so. He was in a failing marriage, he had issues with both his health and alcohol, he was a smoker, and he was now at the far edge of the world, away from any support system he might ever have had. And his attitude didn't really improve when he almost immediately lost his driving privileges to a DUI, and I had to go get him out of jail in the middle of the night. But uh, with Jim, it seemed his life's sole goal was to become a dental repair technician. It was the only area of dentistry in which he really was interested, and it is an area that you know, as you know, can also have a pretty lucrative career outside the Navy. Unfortunately, his score on the mechanical aptitude test he took at the time of his enlistment was far too low for consideration for the school. And his performance marks and consequent failure to advance in rank would both scuttle any application. He very likely felt that his life had no real future whatsoever, and his performance for us initially reflected some of that despondency. He, In my opinion, he just wasn't a lot of fun. But our extreme isolation out there made equipment maintenance and troubleshooting crucial to staying in business. And even though I knew a little bit about uh, equipment myself, I felt it was worth the time to work with him so that we might both be better prepared for any problems that came along. And he proved to be a surprisingly quick study, absorbing all the manuals and bringing us up to date on all preventive maintenance seemed no one had ever capitalized on his interest, and he really enjoyed that aspect of new responsibility. The pride he took in the new knowledge began to reflect in other areas of his performance as well. It became a real pleasure to work with him daily, so I got a big benefit out of it. When I questioned why he had perpetually failed advancement, he said that the biggest shortfall in his test scores came in dental anatomy. Now I happen to know dental anatomy, and it was something we looked at every moment of every day. So I read the anatomy chapter of your dental technician manual because that's where all the test questions were taken from. And as we worked, then I began to point out various anatomic details and trying to give him an image and a relevance for the rather dry read that the manual made by itself. Again, he was a startlingly interested listener and he was a quick study and he would ask questions that eventually went far beyond the requirements of any exam. And uh, it became a real pleasure to note his performance improvement on his evaluations. I, uh, he just really did well.
0: And now let's take a break for a quick word from our sponsor. What do you do when you have an employee who is highly skilled and highly motivated, but is still not successful? Some of these symptoms might be a person who's abrasive to others. Maybe they're not able to effectively communicate to others. Sometimes they say inappropriate things in meetings or in a one-on-one session. You observe them being culturally insensitive or highly opinionated or maybe they just have a few rough edges that need to be removed in order to be successful in these cases training is not your best option at boss builders we recommend coaching our strategic partner wisdom tree coaching provides one-on-one or group coaching to resolve focus factor problems the icf certified coaches at wisdom tree coaching use behavioral assessments and 360 surveys to define the root issue of the problem and then co-create solutions with the client. Wizardry Coaching also facilitates a popular practical course entitled Coaching as a Discipline for Managers. Your managers will get helpful and useful skills to provide a coaching approach with their direct reports to mitigate and eliminate focus issues. Remember, training fixes skill problems. The best way to fix a behavior problem is through coaching. Contact the professionals at Wisdom Tree Coaching at 304-549-4630, or you can find them online at wisdomtreecoaching.com. And now back to the show.
1: Somewhere around that time, we got visited by the Navy Dental Repair Tech from Hawaii. You probably remember the guy that came out there. Yeah. Yeah, he came out for, they did an annual funded trip that he would come out and do periodic maintenance and checks on our equipment. And I took Jim offline for the week so that he could work side by side with a professional. The repair guy kind of concurred with my assessment of Jim's knowledge base, and he felt that he'd make a good repair tech if we could get him into the school. Now, You probably recall the Navy would allow you to one retake of your entire equipment induction exam to try and improve scores that, you know, then might open new career fields for you. It's called the ASVAB exam, if I remember right. Yeah. Jim applied to take the test again, and then he and I began working with the mechanical aptitude test resources we had in our little base library there. And I had always done pretty well with those tests, and I helped him to visualize all the box folding and whatever the similar problems were that comprise those exams. And he made some progress and developed some confidence as his exam date approached. In order to apply for repair school, he had to have a score of 55 in mechanical aptitude, but he had previously gotten only a 47. With the new test, he got a 62, (laughs) and his overall exam score improved to a 72, which conceivably could have opened dozens of additional Navy fields to him if he so chose. But we sent off an application for repair school with some strong endorsements from me and from that same repair tech who had worked with him. And Jim began an all-out push for his next advancement exam. He's aided by our training petty officer, Manny, and by you as well. I mean, you were probably the much better student, but uh, after the exam, he reported how he had just glided through the anatomy section and wondered at the end of it, was that all they wanted to know? (laughs) <laughs> he left or you left shortly thereafter and sometime around thanksgiving jim got notified that he had both passed the advancement exam and he had also been accepted to the next repair school class and uh, though you weren't there to see it words just could not describe his elation i mean he was flying your replacement was a young girl who was fresh out of her initial dental track training with just You know the basic a school knowledge and jim took her under his wing and really worked to bring her up to speed on everything in the clinic and though you weren't there to see it i had never seen such a transformation or such a sudden maturation in anyone i mean it was amazing and it lasted just one month on christmas day jim woke up stumbling and with slurred speech And at age 32, he had had a stroke, and he was out of the Navy within a week. And uh, thinking back on all this, I don't believe I've ever had a greater disappointment in my life. And as an aside to anyone out there dealing with blood pressure issues, just take those things seriously, please.
0: Wow, I had no idea about that. I, I had talked to his wife on Facebook several years ago in the Harold E. Holt Facebook group, and she said he was a golf pro. But I had no idea that all that happened afterwards.
1: Yeah, it uh, it to see the person that Jim became it, just in the space of, well, it was truly just four weeks from, you know, I mean, it was just a matter of like two different mail calls. He got notified that, uh, you know, he had advanced to E5 and he had been accepted to repair school, and the guy was flying i mean it it really and truly would have been see, fun to see where jim took himself from there wow
0: now he was uh, he was a funny guy he was on our dart league and i remember he was uh of course he was drinking pretty heavily but we were playing this aussie team well they were all aussies and so he's this guy who's throwing darts he's got these kind of cheap plastic darts so of course jim says hey where did you get those are those the darts that came with the board and had to break up a fight, so <laughs> he was uh, <laughs> he was a lot of fun outside of work, um, and, uh, and he was fun to work with. Uh, he had a definite, interesting, really funny, dry sense of humor. Yes. But, uh, yeah, wow. Well, and who else uh, do you have a story behind? Because I'm thinking about the other two folks we had there. Who else comes to mind?
1: Well, Catherine... Uh, Catherine was our front desk and administrative petty officer. She arrived at the same time I did, I think within a week or so. And uh, even though she had not attended the Navy's advanced school for administration, she was among the most competent admin techs I ever knew. But uh, unfortunately, she also had had some significant personal issues in her background that made her among the very worst front desk people I ever had. You'll probably recall her mood could take abrupt shifts without any real perceptible provocation, and I'm sure you can attest to the fear I often expressed when I heard the phone ring and wondered just which Catherine was going to answer it.
0: (laughs) I remember, yes. I tried to
1: counsel her several times on that sort of performance, and, uh, you know, to her credit, she understood the reflection it made on our clinic. And uh, one time I was able to get her to allude to some defining event in her personal history that had shaped a bit of who she was. And she even understood that it had considerably affected her personal life as well but uh she was unwilling to detail that history she said she had given it to some previous dental officer and it just forever changed their relationship and i was reluctant to pry since well i mean you hate to say it but Catherine was quite attractive and uh too much interest on my part might be i guess misconstrued especially on a little base where everyone knew everyone else's business there Yes, they did. Yes, and because the base was so small, the referral options for counseling were limited and uh, would pretty likely be subject to rumors, so I never really pressed for the assistance that might have helped for her. And uh, I can't help but feel that I failed her in that regard, but uh, I had no training and pathetic little experience in counseling. The emotions she expressed you know, when, so my amateurish meddling probably would have been unlikely to help anyway. You know, I mentioned in, this is just for you, but, uh, I mentioned that, uh, at one point I, uh, something happened with Catherine that I was responsible for, and I always wished I had been able to see it and, uh, you'll get a kick out of this, uh, I believe you were there when uh, there was some boatswain mate that was arrested for uh, murdering his wife on base. Do you remember that? I remember, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Well, that guy lived behind my house and two doors up. He was on Stokes Hughes like you were, and uh, but he was way down toward me. And when his wife disappeared, he had to report her missing. And we immediately had a whole bunch of Aussie police, some of their state police people showed up on this missing persons case because it was pretty suspicious from the get-go. And uh, so they started questioning everybody in the neighborhood. Now, I'd never had the slightest dealings with this guy. I mean, I'm sure he had been in as a dental patient, but I don't recall him much at all. And he worked out at the pier there. He was one of the small boat drivers that they used to as kind of a tugboat when their fuel. Ships came in to resupply the fuel out at the generator out there, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, the policeman that came around wanted to know if I had heard any fighting or had seen them, you know, out of, out and about. I never did. It, it was our backyards that abutted, and they just never were out there. I was always out there cleaning fish. But uh, somewhere in the course of mentioning that uh, I had not seen her, In that capacity, I said, but just last Thursday, she had come into our dental clinic, and uh, I had set her up with an appointment for next Tuesday. And it was over that weekend she disappeared. Well, that got some rather intense interest. And when the NIS people showed up, I got... uh, Good grilling on that whole subject, and they wanted to know, you know, did she sound like she was going to be leaving? And I said, no, she was looking forward to coming to the uh, appointment. You know, just, uh, you know, I guess patient privacy kind of goes out the window in a situation like this. But she was a uh, Filipina and had one of those really crummy Filipino full dentures, and uh, I was going to reline it. And she was really looking forward to it, it seemed. So anyway, you know how the whole story went down. The guy wound up convicted, but they had never found her body. And uh, their conjecture was that uh, he had tossed her off the pier on an outbound tide. And as the Navy Times reported, he threw her body into the shark-infested waters off Northwest Cape. Mm Mm-hmm. And that got me a call from my mother in the middle of the night because my dad subscribed to the Navy Times. <laughs> she had always asked, do you ever see sharks? And I go, well, sometimes. And and that was the way they reported it. Well, anyway, that should really be kind of the end of the story. But if, if we fast forward to about, well, I don't know, it would have been about 99, I guess. I was, uh, the head of the clinic in Monterey, California, and I got a call from the NIS guy at Lamore, and he wanted to know what I remembered about that case. And he wouldn't answer any questions I asked about, well, why do you want to know? What, you, you know, what can I fill you in on? And he just wanted me to relate the whole story as I had dictated it half a dozen times in the X-Mouth. And, uh, and... <laughs> He, I kept pressing him on, what, why were you asking at this late date, you know, what's up? The guy finally, he, he wanted to know what the actual date was she had come in. Now, I remembered it was a Thursday because I proposed doing it the next day, doing the reline. But she would have been without her denture through the weekend while Manny processed it. And she didn't want that. And so we put her in for the next, I guess it was Tuesday, so that it could be just an overnight procedure. But he wanted to know what the date was. And I'm like, I don't have a clue. And then he wanted to know what had happened to the record, the written record. And I'm like... Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, people that didn't pick up their records, there was a whole dead record section there in admin. And, uh, you know, I'm like, it probably sat there, and they closed the base in 92, and I don't know what they'd do with them. You know, don't ask me. I wasn't there. And finally, the guy caved in, and he told me the whole issue was that the Australian police had had a skull wash up at Northwest Cape, and they wanted to know if this might be that victim or whether they might have another victim somewhere else. And uh, so, I mean, all I could tell them was, if you found a skull and it has so much as one tooth in the maxillary arch, you got another, that's a new case. I said she had no teeth up there. Right. But uh, he wanted, for some reason, he wanted the original record And so he wanted to know what might have happened to it. And the only thing I could say, I said, you know, I had an admin tech at that time who was just meticulous with records and with everything that was official. And I said, she may have some idea. If somebody, you know, in the Australian police system or whatever took that record, she would probably remember. So he wanted to know where she was. (laughs) And for some reason, I knew that she was on a ship out of Bremerton at that time. It would have probably been about her last tour, I guess. And uh, so I gave him her name and the name of the ship. And uh, subsequently, I found out that at the time he was asking me, the ship was out on cruise out in the Indian Ocean. And uh, at the end of their tour, on their way back, their first stop would have been Singapore. And... I don't know. You, if you were ever on a ship, did you? Ever, were you ever on one where you'd be deployed for a long time, and you'd go into port and have liberty somewhere? Did you ever do that? No, I never served aboard any ships,
0: so oh never had well.
1: That. You, it would have been good and bad. You would. Have, I, I would bet you were the type who would have loved it. Well, anyway, the procedure of getting off the ship at the end of a day or going on liberty is you approach the quarter deck of the ship, wherever they've got the brow down to the pier, and you show your ID card and you salute the officer of the deck, say, request permission to go ashore, and the officer of the deck salutes back and says, permission granted, and you just turn and go down the thing. Now, you have to picture that she was on a destroyer tender, and there probably were like 1,300 people on this thing. Everybody has been out at sea for weeks, and so they're just all in a line trying to get to Singapore and see something. And each person steps up saying, request permission to go ashore, sir. You'd salute, permission granted. Off you'd go. Request permission to go ashore. Permission granted. You have to picture this happening a thousand times. Catherine steps up there and says, "Request permission to go ashore," and he says, "Deny." You go with these NIS officers over here. I always wish I could have seen what what's going through her head. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no. Yeah, I just, you know, it, it had the rumors that would fly around that ship because there were bound to be 100 witnesses there on the fandale. So anyway, it uh, I always wondered if she ever would ever forgive me for that one.
0: <laughs> Such is life. Oh wow, I know I've had totally I had not thought of that uh, case for a long time. Um I did run into her probably about that time. I ended up getting out. I did the 15-year retirement in, uh, it was uh, January of 99. So gosh, 20 years ago. And I, and she was a chief and she was about ready to get out as well. Um, but she looked about the same, didn't mention anything about that. Um, back to Jim Harris, this popped into my mind. We were doing the annual fishing tournament off the pier. And so Jim loudly stands up. He says, all right, first prize. Goes to the person that snags a piece of Mrs. Elmore's nightgown. <laughs> <laughs> I'd forgotten that one. <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow. He
1: could, be, he could be gruesome when he needed to be.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was great. Well, that leaves us, I guess, with Manny. So uh, I remember Manny just being just a great guy, um, just a real nice guy. So much, uh, just a positive change over the guy who was the previous lab tech, who was just as obnoxious as a person could possibly be. And uh, so anyway, let's talk a little bit about his development.
1: Okay. Manny was uh, our prosthetic lab tech, as you said, in in a one-man dentist clinic, the call for his laboratory expertise was pretty limited. I mean, I don't know how many cases we'd put through there in a month, but, you know, it was scarcely enough to keep a very, very competent tech busy. But he was out there just because it was one of those impossible transit times for crown and denture cases going to and from the states. And so they felt, the Navy evidently felt it was worth having him posted out there. But his collateral duty became pretty much his primary duty. And that was serving as our training petty officer. And I'm sure you would concur when I say he excelled. And I never had to become formally involved in any of your technician training because he was doing so much a better job than I ever might. And your advancement test scores and both your and Jim's subsequent success were all testimony to his preparation, his delivery. And in the end, it was his documentation Shortly after your departure, we had the first IG inspection out there that the early Holt medical department had had in some seven years. And uh, during my three-year tenure, Navy medicine had undergone some real seismic changes in infection control and quality assurance and a lot of other areas and big programs that were detailed in just voluminous new instructions. And out there, I think you'll You know, you probably grew to appreciate after you left that we were really not in any dental chain of command. We belonged to the Navy Telecommunications uh, Command, and I was the only dentist in that thing. The, The head of it didn't have a staff dentist to advise him. And as a result, we weren't on any distribution list for new instructions. The Navy really didn't even know we were out there, I don't think. And thus, we were just woefully in the dark on these new requirements, and we were. I will tell you, we were hopelessly unprepared for any administrative evaluation. Adding to the issues, Catherine had detached, and her replacement was nowhere near Catherine's league incompetence. So the new person was of very limited use in my preparations. Ultimately, the medical side of the house out there failed their inspection, but I passed. And I, I mean, I can say with absolute certainty that it was only because of the meticulous records that Manny had kept on training and the subsequent successes you and Jim had had on your advancement exams. When I detached, well, it was just probably a couple months after that, I told my replacement that Manny was deserving of a very significant end-of-tour award because of this sustained performance, his excellent performance. And I later heard that Manny had left without an award, and I was pretty devastated. So, anyway, the, I can go on and on about, uh, you know, with a lot of stories. I mean, there's one other that occurred to me. You'd, you kind of, you know, started into it a little bit. I I generically recommend college courses to all of my assistants, either those, you know, in search of a perf- potential career or for any kind of enrichment or whatever. But our options out there in Australia were really limited just to the offerings that the University of Maryland College Extension Service sent around to the <laughs> hinterlands out there and uh the first one that came along after I arrived was english composition i don't know if you remember that mm-hmm. but that's a subject useful for anyone and for any potential career in america and to help coerce all of you to sign up i signed up as well but i believe it was only you and me that lasted out the course mm-hmm. sometime after that uh, you had come into the clinic saying so you would signed up to take one of the clep tests and uh, I don't know if this is what you were saying, that it was physics. I, I didn't remember you'd taken physics, but I'll believe you. Uh, you know, if you <laughs> didn't like it, you'd remember
0: it. Trust me, that is a scar on my soul. Yeah, I took it.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, the, the one I recall, you, had, you came in saying you were going to take the psychology exam. And uh, I asked what you knew about it. And you said, well, nothing but it's free. And if I pass, I get the credit and I don't have to take that course in college. And uh, I pointed out that if you did not pass, you were then relegated to taking that course. And I personally had hated psychology. My apologies to your psychologists and your audience here. But anyway, I made you check out a textbook on the subject from the base library and you studied a chapter each night. And uh, the next morning I'd test you on the chapter end questions. And after we completed the whole text, you took the exam and you passed. And if I recall, you were pretty excited about the whole thing. And if Again, I you know, you're testing an old memory that's, you know, from 30 years back here or more. I think you took five more subjects out there, and I believe you passed four of those. So, I, you know, I mean, we before you left, we figured you had taken a full semester of college, and you were pretty good about that. But uh, the successes you enjoyed there seemed to ignite your drive toward education, and I have to say you have probably succeeded beyond my own accomplishments there. And I cannot take much credit for your success and for what you've become.
0: Well, you can. And and that's the reason I wanted to have you on because it was, it, you know, and so it was, you're right. I was somebody who was pretty scattered and didn't have a lot of direction, but there was a lot of, of chipping away that you did. And, you know, I remember one of the classes I did take was a, it was a creative writing course there. And so I really enjoyed that. That was a lot of fun. And I would bring in my stories and you'd red ink the whole thing. And I think I had one, uh, it was a reflection of a guy who's about to die in the electric chair the night before. And, you know, you said, ah, this is a, this is a little over the top and you, you know, you chopped it down a little bit, but that really did help my writing quite a bit. And, you know, Testament today, I've been blogging once a week now since 2008. So, you know, Stuff I can't even remember that I've written, but it was not just, and I've seen a lot of this with folks is that, oh, you you can do anything you want. You can be whatever you want. And in some cases, that's just not true. But I think you took the different approach in that you said, you can do these things. It's going to take a great deal of work. I'm going to work with you. I'm not going to let you dog it. And so I do give you credit for that. Um, My wife and I look at our two kids today. And, you know, one's graduated from college and that would have never happened had I not worked with you because I didn't see a value in college back then. Our daughter is a sophomore in college at University of Tennessee. And again, we pushed her from the very beginning. And so all of this goes back to having somebody who would take the interest and you started off by saying, you know, one of the things you started off doing is just getting to know people, just building a rapport to where they would be a trust level. And then the second part, of course, is to push us in a direction that you saw us naturally inclining to go to, but then working alongside of us to get us there. So um, so I'm grateful for that, Greg. That is something that, um, and I'm so glad I was able to get you on the podcast because, like I've always said, you'll always remember the best boss you've ever had and you'll always remember the worst boss you'll ever have. Everybody in between is just a blur. And that has most certainly been the case for me. I can, I've got a dead heat for the worst boss I ever had. Uh, if you're interested in that, you can go back to podcast number one. But by far, you are, you are the best boss. And, and for that, I'm grateful.
1: Well, I will tell you that uh, a few good things have come my way in my time, but I can sincerely say that I really have never been more flattered than by your references to my influence in your life and your success. I guess I can hope there are just a few other success stories out there to which I contributed at least slightly.
0: Well, I have no doubt that there is. And uh, my hope is that somebody who's listening to this podcast may be somebody from your past and and reach out. Um, I know that you don't have services to sell. I normally end my podcast by asking folks how they can reach out to you. But just in the odd chance that somebody from your background is listening to this, uh, would you be willing to at least give an email address that maybe that person could just uh, chime in or any of my other listeners if they had any comments uh, I'd be grateful for that
1: well, I'd be delighted to hear from somebody from those days I mean it it uh, those truly were the best the best tour I had in the navy without question and the best the the most fun people that I worked with and uh, I mean our experience out there is a long-lasting team was truly unique in my navy career and it led to some real significant development for all of us and quite coincidentally that best boss you ever had was very likely the best boss i ever was so you know if people if anybody would like to talk to me about uh you know how i would distill down all of my stories i think there probably are some legitimate takeaways but uh I can be contacted at uh, g G. Nelson at CenturyLink.net. I'm not very complicated.
0: g G. Nelson at CenturyLink.net. Great. Well, Greg, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Um, Best of luck as you enjoy your outdoor lifestyle now. Hopefully you have a great hunting season and get back to the Cape at some point again. Uh, But thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Mac, it was a delight, not just because I had to stop shoveling snow to do this. So anyway, great to talk to you and uh, hope there was something of value for your career and for your team out there.
0: Absolutely. Thanks, Greg. Well, thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the Boss Builder Podcast. If you are listening to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play, would you do us a favor and leave us a quick review? Positive ones, of course, are appreciated, but it really helps us get the message out. Until the next time we meet, please get out there and do your very best. We call that at Boss Builders, bossing up and bossing on. So, until the next time we meet, get out there, boss up, and boss on. Goodbye.